This is, uh, you might want to get a, a worksheet over there. Um, this is a second part of a two-part series that we started back in January. And since many of you weren't here then, I'll give a brief overview of what we looked at then. Um, these notes are adapted from the ACBC training course. And it's, a, an, it's an important topic because it's how we change and grow, how we mature to be, to be like Christ, how we mature in the Christian life. And it's also important because Satan and the world system are always seeking to uh, distract us and lead us astray, and many times through uh, counterfeits. And last time I began by reading a statement by Jay Adams describing the work of the Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit is the author of both sanctification and the Bible. And in it, He's told us what He does and how He works. And many times, I think the Spirit and His work are seen as mystical and confusing, but that shouldn't be. And that's probably in large part uh, due to the large number of TV preachers who um, have all sorts of ideas. Then we looked at um, we looked at Ephesians four eleven through sixteen. This passage discusses the fact that each believer is a part of the body, the church, and the church is much of the means by which we grow. I mentioned some of the many resources and opportunities we here ha- we have here at Grace to facilitate growth through discipleship. Next, we looked at the Westminster Confession statement on sanctification and also Wayne Grudem's statement, which is that sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will is that we be sanctified. Sanctification is a necessary part of salvation. And in Hebrews 12, it says without sanctification, we will not see God. So it is a necessary part, an integral part. Then we looked at three popular contemporary views of sanctification which are presented in the drawings you have. If you didn't get a drawing, they're back by the door. The first is the Wesleyan or Christian perfection view, which says there's a chronological separation between when one is saved and when one gets serious. And it comes through a second work of grace or second blessing. If you see on your diagram the... Uh, After salvation, we rock along, and then all of a sudden something happens. And uh, by their description, we're catapulted into this um, Christ-likeness. It's called Christian perfection. And... They say that you can be saved without being submitted to Christ as Lord. And they call it entire sanctification, but they aren't saying that one becomes perfect as to the law, but they redefine the law as that which is only a willful transgression of the known law of God. It's a form of higher life theology and also blended with revivalism and became the holiness movement. Another spinoff is Pentecostalism, which includes being slain in the Spirit and speaking in tongues. They're usually very legalistic, and many insist that the KJV is the only authorized Bible. Now think about this. If, if, if we reach this state of sinlessness then that's going to promote self-righteousness, isn't it? 
And that's why so many that are buying into this are so legalistic. Next, we looked at the Keswick view, which is the second drawing, which is probably the most popular view today. This is also a higher life or deeper life or exchange life view where there's also a second blessing experience that brings us into the victorious Christian life or the abundant Christian life. The struggle with sin continues but is lessened significantly by accepting understanding and being totally committed, totally surrendered to, totally concentrated to, consecrated to some new truth by believing it more deeply and yet passively trusting God. Let go and let God is the Keswick mantra. I'm sure you've heard that many times. And if you advocate any effort on the part of the believer, it's usually considered legalism. Quietism and greater surrender characterize the person. In both of these views, experience becomes the interpretive grid. And this is also why you'll find uh, so many who hold to these views have a charismatic leaning. And, you know, this is why so many of them go to the altar over and over again. The third view, or what we consider the biblical reform, or reform view, is progressive sanctification. That's your third drawing. It's a lifelong cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth toward Christ-likeness. We sin less, but we might see our sin more. We trust that the Holy Spirit is giving us the power to discipline ourselves and cooperate with Him. And this cycle ends with glorification at death. We also last time mentioned that the Bible talks about three tenses or three stages of sanctification. Past or positional present are progressive, and future are prospective, which corresponds to glorification. Justification and sanctification are distinct, but, but inseparable. James says that faith alone justifies, but that the faith that justifies will not be alone. Regeneration is when one is born again and made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is something God does alone at a point in time. Conversion follows and means to be turned around and is also accomplished at one point in time. At the time of conversion, our position is now perfectly holy before God. What He sees is perfection as far as our standing. But our practice is different. There's some big changes that come with conversion, but practical change happens more slowly. Did I hear an amen somewhere? (laughs) You know, the... Um, spiritual warfare doesn't happen out here somewhere. It happens in here, in every one of us. The evidence of conversion at the human level isn't perfection, but direction and a pattern of growing obedience. These tracks of position and practice converge at death. 
Justification is when we are declared righteousness in Christ. It's a legal position or standing. God gives to us alien righteousness, and thus He sees us as if we have lived the life of Christ. Glorification is also at a point in time, and God does that also. All of these happen at a point in time, but sanctification is different. It's a process. God enables us to do it, and it is our responsibility, but we cannot do it alone. Sanctification comes through repentance and faith, which is something the Holy Spirit enables man to do over time. We exercise faith and repentance, but we can't produce either of those. Now, look at the, uh, the bottom part of your sheet. And let's put this into some comparisons. Um, the first five come from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And the second five come from Andy Nacelli. There's, there's overlap, but I like the way that they both explain them a little bit differently. So justification is a legal standing. Sanctification is an eternal an internal condition. Justification is once for all time. But sanctification is continuous throughout life. Justification is entirely God's work. Sanctification, we cooperate. Justification is perfect in this life. Sanctification is not perfect in this life. Justification is the same in all Christians. Sanctification is greater in some than in others. Justification, we're instantly declared righteous. Sanctification, gradually made righteous. Justification, instantly removes sin's guilt and penalty. Sanctification, gradually removes sin's power and pollution. Justification, objective, judicial, non-experiential, legal. Sanctification, subjective and experiential. Justification, instantaneous, once for all, never repeated. Sanctification, continual, lifelong, maturing process. And justification, all Christians share the same legal standing. Sanctification, Christians are at different stages. Sanctification is brought about by God through human agency. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Which, by the way, is probably one of the uh, clear scriptures as it relates to how this happens. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in us and enables us to work. And notice that there's a command here, a command to work it out. He also works within us, including our will, which is internal, not just external. 
It's from the inside out, not just behavior modification. If you prevent a man from getting to porn by blocking his computer or adding covenant eyes, has he changed? No. If you put a lock on the refrigerator and prevent a woman from eating bonbons all day, has she changed? No. That's only temporary and external. But real change happens in the heart. Our affections, our will, and our emotions need to change so that we come to love Christ more. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So here Paul's saying that he worked, but God worked with him. Colossians 1.29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Paul said he labored, but with God's energy. Galatians 3, 2 uh, 2 through 5 says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then... Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He who provides or supplies the Spirit indicates an ongoing process. And Paul was asking, since they were justified by the Spirit, are they now growing by the flesh? He was asking, whose power are you under? There are those who say that sanctification is also by grace alone. As I mentioned last time, there are even some within biblical counseling that would say that. But we believe that by saying sanctification is by grace alone confuses and hinders the gospel. Many unbelievers reject the gospel by using as an excuse those who could care less about sanctification. There are those who think it doesn't matter how we live. And this is probably the biggest reason that the SBC is looked down on. In so doing, they minimize our responsibility. And how does this relate to counseling? If they believe change happens automatically or as a natural result of conversion, then they'll be surprised and discouraged when changes don't happen. I've I've seen this over and over. Here's a good analogy. Farmers don't just sit on the porch and pray that God will grow their crops. They work hard, but they can't grow corn. They plow, they plant, they water, and then they weed the fields. These are activities that the farmer does. God doesn't do these for the farmer, but God causes the growth. Some folks think that we should just surrender and then that God will take over and do the rest. I guess the Keswick farmer thinks that God's going to pull the weeds for him too. Probably not. But God says that we are to discipline ourselves. And counseling is like farming. 
you're working to cause growth. You want to listen and hear what folks believe about the Christian life. Are they coasting through life or are they exercising through discipline? Exercising toward godliness. Are they structured and disciplined? Or are they lazy and just following their feelings? You know, we, we can't offer people quick fixes. Spiritual growth takes time and effort. Even Jesus had to grow or learn through doing. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Now, these verses describe counseling and discipleship. And the goal for us all, every man, is defined as complete in Christ. Change is expected. God expects us to grow. And the basis of that that growth is our union with Him. John 15 talks about abiding in Him. He is the vine, we're the branches. And we're to be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, the fruit of the Spirit is fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. The fruit is the evidence that He is there. He produces it in us as we abide in Him and respond in obedience. Change is difficult, but it's possible. And the best part is that change has already been provided for. Uh, If you will, grab your Bible and look at uh, 2 Timothy 3. We're going to look at uh, verses 16 and 17. And this is a passage that talks about the sufficiency of Scripture. But also it talks about four elements of change and how the Spirit uses the Word. And for the most part, these are in order. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Spirit uses the word to teach and enlighten, to bring understanding to the mind. Next, he uses the word to bring conviction. And conviction means to be convinced of wrongdoing. It's the exposing of sin and summoning to repentance. Teaching and conviction can occur simultaneously. Correction means to stand something up that's fallen over. Conviction can lead to despair if there's no means of correction. Correction involves repentance, changing of the mind, and then the first steps of righteous behavior, replacing the sinful behavior. Training in righteousness comes from the Greek word padeia, which means to train thoroughly, like in music, mathematics, gymnastics, whatever. Change requires much effort like an athlete that has to train for competition. And we must be willing to do whatever it takes to change. 
God expects us to put a hundred, put forth a hundred percent effort toward becoming godly. But we will never change apart from the Holy Spirit. You could say it's grace-motivated effort, not the work of the flesh. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. We may be able to work for a while, but without the Spirit, we will not endure. First Timothy 4.7 tells us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And we must be willing to go to radical lengths to stop sin. In biblical counseling, we call this radical, radical amputation. And it's advocated in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed with adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So the radical amputation here is, is tearing out eyes and cutting off hands, which is hyperbole, but you get the point. Let's look at um, Ephesians 4, 17 through 28. This is a good passage to look at for the practical implications of change. Verse 17, Ephesians 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus." Then in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So true change is rooted in the mind. 1 Peter 1 tells us to gird up our mind. And gird comes from the word girdle, which means to bind, to tighten, to restrain. 2 Corinthians 10 says we're to take our thoughts captive. Romans 12.2 says that we can be totally transformed. And the word there is metamorphosized. 
through the renewing of our mind. And in this passage in verses 17 through 19, it's talking about the pagan mindset. Since they're living in darkness, they do not understand God. Their thoughts are useless and they're ignorant of the truth. The pagan mindset is cultivated through the repetitive lifestyle of sin. And their heart is hard and there's no sensitivity or shame towards sin. There's greediness, which is the lust for more, and sensuality rules. So sensuality means to live according to your senses, to live by your feelings. Can a Christian be motivated by feelings also? Sure. And you'll find many who are dominated by feelings. They're running from one experience to another. And their mantra is that bad feelings must be avoided at all costs. And I'll give you a personal observation here. Don't think that women are the only ones that live by their feelings. Men can be just as feeling-oriented as women. Women tend to be more aware of their emotions. But men are just as tempted by fear as women. And many times they're just unaware when they're operating in it. I've had men tell me that they didn't fear anything and come to find out they're consumed by it. And I don't think they were lying to me. They just didn't get it, oblivious to it. Now, girls, I'm not saying that men are oblivious to everything, okay? So don't go there. But men tend to, be, tend to not see it when they're living in fear for some reason. Maybe it's just because we want to deny it. But coming to the knowledge of the truth through conviction and a renewed mind, we put off the old and put on the new. I mean, how do we change? We put off the old and put on the new. But it's after coming to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible doesn't tell us to just stop doing things. It teaches replacement. And here we see one of the most important passages for counseling or for changing and growing. It's, it's the clearest picture of how we change and grow. And Jay Adams called this the put-off, put-on dynamic. And let's look at a couple of the examples that were in the passage. Look at verses 25 and 28. When does a man stop being a liar? When he's not lying? No. When he becomes a truth teller. I really like the example in verse 28. It says, when is a man not a thief? When he isn't stealing? No, he's just resting or waiting for nightfall or for the next opportunity. So why does someone steal? They steal because they're too lazy to work for it. He's no longer a thief when he becomes a giver. Now this guy isn't stealing. He's working with his own hands and producing so that he can give. And so when, when someone goes from, from being a thief, taking, to now giving, that's total transformation. So in verses 22, in verse 22 it says, put off the old. Verse 24, put on the new. And Paul talked about it like, like taking a coat off and putting another coat on. 
But even pagans can do that, right? What's the difference for the believer is in verse 23. It's mind renewal. What brings mind renewal? What's the only thing that will renew your mind with God's mind is the mind of Christ, the Word. So let's exposit this passage a little more. What's one of the greatest hindrances to change? What keeps so many people stuck? Look back at, at verse 19 again. Notice the little word sensuality. Can you think of another place where this word shows up? Come on, Will. Fruits of the flesh. Huh? Fruits of the flesh. Okay, the deeds of the flesh. Yeah. Let's look at uh, Galatians 5. Turn back just a few pages. Now, by the way, this is another passage that that describes sanctification. Galatians 5, we'll look at uh, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now, by the way, that's... That's spiritual warfare right there. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. There's there's a word. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, that's, that's not the total list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what we're talking about, crucifying the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So Christ-likeness comes through putting off the deeds of the flesh and putting on the fruit of the Spirit. Sensuality is a deed of the flesh. So what's the opposite? What's the opposite of, of sensuality? Okay, so... The opposite of living a feelings-oriented lifestyle is living a command-oriented lifestyle through self-discipline and self-control. So self-control is the opposite of sensuality. Now, we're, we're talking about in a practical sense. If we do not renew our minds and exercise self-control, our automatic default is to live by feelings. And the only way to not live by feelings is if we are consistently renewing our mind. The last piece of the fruit that is listed is the one that's necessary to live out all the rest of the fruit with any consistency. Without self-control, you will not be consistently loving. You will not have peace consistently.
Think about it. If you have, had never read the Word, wouldn't you just trust what you feel and believe about anything? Wouldn't you just rely on your self-confident assessment? Putting off and putting on is how we change habits. And we, we mentioned last time that habits are automatic, comfortable, and unconscious. Another passage that describes sanctification as the put-off, put-on dynamic is Colossians 3. Let's look at that. Colossians 3, starting with verse 5, says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts for idolatry, to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now here's the put on, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on, on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So what's the word that was repeated three times in that passage? Forgiveness. Say again? Forgiveness. No. Nope. Thanks. <laughs> you see... Um, Verse 16, thankfulness in your hearts, giving thanks in verse 17. Where's the other one? 15. Yeah, 15. Yep. So, so someone who is thankful is one of the best descriptions of a sanctified believer. Thanksgiving, thankfulness is huge. So, so how do we change? We meditate on the truth. We pray. We build inner conviction. We pray. We obey. And then we thank God for any and all changes. We add impediments 
to former sinful ways. We, root, we remove impediments to new righteous ways. We remove facilitators to former sinful ways. We add facilitators to new righteous ways. Christians do not break habits. Pagans do. Christians replace bad habits with good ones. We replace sinful habits with godly habits. I think I can squeeze this in too. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 real quick. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Notice in in, in verse 11, after describing this list of really sinful lifestyle, Um, Paul said, such were some of you. That's past tense. So I want to talk just a second about AA and so-called Christian recovery groups like Celebrate Recovery. They teach once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. They're said to be either inactive or inactive in their addiction. And it's the disease model versus biblical sin. A true Christian is never characterized by his former sin. I've, had, I've heard people who haven't had a drink in 20 years call themselves an alcoholic. And understand, AA is a religion. Even though many AA programs meet in and are run by churches, they directly contradict Scripture. They have their own Bible, the Blue Book, their own doctrines, their own prophets, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, their own version of forgiveness, their own version of repentance, which is making amends, and it isn't to God. And your higher power can be whoever you imagine or create him to be, which is idolatry. They're taught to trust in their own ability not to drink. And they call it walking the steps. The steps and sobriety become their God. And the main motivation becomes peer pressure or fear of man. They try to avoid having to confess to the group or disappoint their sponsor. I think sometimes people will drink just to get attention from the group or get everybody to feed their self-pity because one of the, one of the problems with those who are in, uh, have gotten to the point of drugs and alcohol is they have a perishing mentality. Biblical change comes through conviction and repentance. <clears throat> But if it's, if it's a disease rather than sin, how can one repent? AA may help someone stop drinking, 
But that is not sanctification. Not drinking, as helpful as that is, does not cause growth. Celebrate recovery borrowed from AA and is just 12 steps with the Bible verses added for Christian validation. What does the word recovery imply, sin or sickness? Drunkenness is first idolatry, and then it's habituated into addiction. You know, we've talked about how much, um, how much habits play into our struggles with sin. Recovery means to return back to the original state. Rehabilitation seeks to change behaviors. But we want to see our desires change through thinking and conviction. We want to see repentance that transforms into the image of Christ. I said for years, I would love to see one start a program and call it Celebrate Repentance. So even when you go back and look at the sins who are listed here, these sins are mind-altering. They are... Um, life-dominating. But even these sins, by the work of the Spirit, can be put to death. Will there be drunkards in heaven? Yes. But there will be repentant drunkards. Will there be homosexuals in heaven? Yes. Or, Or let's say those who were into homosexuality at one time, but they repented. That's the issue. Repentance is always the issue. Okay. Got that in. 1045. Questions? This making sense because I've condensed like about three hours of teaching into... What, about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes? <laughs> By the way, Amy, sorry I'm so late. I should have done this on the front end, but it's Tom Webb d- teaching sanctification in the class faithful. Oh, becoming one. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Blessings. Blessings.